Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Night received a Master of Arts degree from Dallas University and his licentiate and doctor doctoral degrees in sacred theology from the Pontifical Lateran University in Rome. In 1977, Dr. William Marshner became a founding faculty member at Christendom College and served continuously as professor of theology until his retirement in 2015. But he's not really retired. He's still working hard uh, in his office there. A well-known author and Protestant convert to the Catholic Church, Dr. William Marshner has lectured widely on topics ranging from Islam to the heresy of modernism. Dr. Marshner is a regular presenter at the Institute of Catholic Culture, and we are always delighted to welcome him. So give a big round of applause for Dr. William Marshner. Thank you, sir. It is a great pleasure to address the Institute for Catholic Culture again. Been doing it for years and always enjoyed it hugely. And tonight I have a thankless task. I'm supposed to talk to you about a way of dancing with the devil. And uh, this particular way is called liberation theology. Not only do I have this hideous topic to deal with tonight, but next week as well. And um, I, di I didn't prepare a handout for you tonight because I don't know how far I'm going to get. But I will have a handout for you next week that has, you know, the main points and so on. The theology of liberation burst upon the scene in the very, at the very end of the 60s and the first years of the 1970s. Now, cast your mind back to those not very remote dates, not remote to some of us anyway. My, my students are astounded that I remember anything from 1970. <laughs> but the very end of the 60s, the beginning of the 70s, Liberation theology burst upon the scene, and the um, the event that um, kicked off its fame was a famous meeting at the town of Medellin in Colombia, beautiful place, I'm told, up in the mountains. Um, this was a meeting of a thing called Salem. Conferencia Episcopal Latinoamericano, the Episcopal Conference of Latin America. Now that was a brand new invention right after the council. Usually in the past, Episcopal conferences have been national. So we want one in Peru, one in Brazil, one in Uruguay, and so on. 
Well, some experts got together and decided that the whole Latin American region was sufficiently unified to support one great Episcopal conference. Now, there's a trouble with big Episcopal conferences. The bigger they are, the less they can do. And so the more of the work gets pushed off to um, experts. Okay. You can't get bishops to pull together very well. A friend of mine was at one time the um, majority leader of the United States Senate, and he said trying to get senators to do things together is like herding cats. It's exactly the same with bishops. They're each potentates in their own realms, and to get them to pull together is uh, eh, against the grain, shall we say. So this huge meeting of Salem in 1968 was entirely run by the experts who had been chosen by the bishops to draw up the agenda and chair, you know, put out the schedule for the meetings and so on. The bishops had very little to do with the agenda. And the agenda became famous because that was the event where the majority of the bishops were led by the experts to vote for a very, quote, progressive, unquote, position. <laughs> progressive is one of those interesting words that seems to have more meaning than it does. Okay? When do I call a process progressive? Answer, when it's heading towards something I want. That's it. There's nothing deeper about it than that. Who declares what is and is not progress is the one who is talking about what he or she wants. Everything else is retrograde or decline or something or other. So when you hear that a new position was progressive, what you know is that that is what the media czars wanted. Okay? And the experts wanted. Well, what did they want? They wanted the bishops of Latin America to take a much more radical position in favor of social action uh, to liberate the South American continent from the um, developed countries. Liberation from ties to the developed countries. Now, this was a strange turn of thinking. Because up until about 1965, 66, the predominant theology governing the preferences of Latin American bishops and experts was called theology of development. Okay. Development meant bringing the Latin American countries out of underdevelopment into 
modernization, jobs, industries, and um, better schools and so on, hygiene, bring them into the modern world um, in line with the developed nations. In those days, the developed nations were divided into two worlds, the first world, the second world. Do you remember this stuff? The first world was us in the West, and the second world was the Soviet Union, and everybody else was the third world, and that's where you had underdevelopment. Well, I'm delighted to say that the second world has collapsed. Bye-bye, so there's no more third world. But we still have a distinction between the developed countries and the undeveloped or underdeveloped ones. But I'm happy to say the underdeveloped ones are not um, universal in the third world anymore. Look at India. Huge country, just prospering mightily. And for that matter, look at China, where the Communist Party did something very smart. They held on to their power and pitched out their ideology. So people could go into business, encourage entrepreneurship. Of course, the Chinese are natural at that. Okay, If you go back in history, uh, you will find communities of merchants and business people in all the cities of East Asia, down into uh, Hanoi and all the way down to Singapore, and so on, and those groups of merchants and entrepreneurs were always the Chinese. So entrepreneurship is second nature uh, in that culture, and um, I suppose that helped the uh, Communist Party in China to get rid of its destructive ideology. I'm not denying that their uses of political power are also destructive, but the, the ideology at least made everybody poor. <laughs> Now it doesn't. So development is coming along in places, but in 1970, 68, 69, 70, that was not seen. Instead, you had this universal problem of third world underdevelopment. And the entire Latin American continent was assumed to be in that condition. One of those experts who was present at the Medellin Conference in 1968 was a Peruvian priest named Gustavo Gutierrez. Gustavo Gutierrez. He published in the following year a book, 1971. He published a book called uh, Theology of Liberation well, that's what it's called in English, and it was published in English just a year later, 1973, by uh, Orbis Books. Now, does anybody recognize the imprint Orbis Books? Hmm? That's the Mary Noel publisher. Liberation theology ran wild through the Mary Noel missionary order and thus was taken all over the world as missionaries went to uh, help uh, the poor and the so-called backward and uh, brought this 
liberation theology with them. Now then, um, in 1971, right after Gutierrez's book was published, we had the first all Latin American Congress of an outfit called the Christians for Socialism. Previously unheard of. It was organized in Chile with the coming to power of a very left-wing figure named Allende. Allende was a thoroughgoing socialist and um, Chilean elections usually went to the Christian Democrat Party, but the Christian Democrats down there that year ran to the left of Allende. So Allende seemed more moderate. <laughs> and uh, the Christians for Socialism was a group of clergy organized during that period to help bring socialism to all corners of Chilean society. I'm happy to say that a few years later, there was an army uprising and Allende was overthrown. It was a famous gun battle outside of the uh, presidential palace in Santiago. And, um, well, uh, people hate me when I say it's a good thing Allende was overthrown. But nobody in Chile hates me because they found out what an impoverishing and oppressive thing socialism was firsthand. Okay? And it wasn't just plutocrats who rebelled against Allende and supported the army uprising. It was housewives. They went out into the streets of the cities banging pots and pans because the pots were empty. They said, where the heck did the food go? Chile used to be a well-fed country not after socialism took over. Which reminds me of my favorite story about what happened when communism took over the Sahara Desert. Well, nothing happened for about a thousand years. Then they declared a shortage of sand. Right. All right. After Allende was overthrown, the Christians for Socialism migrated up to Nicaragua. What was going on in Nicaragua in those days? Leftist agitation, the Sandinistas, and so on. So the Christians for Socialism uh, could just as well have been named the Christians for Communism. They didn't draw a big distinction. And um, when that first meeting of theirs occurred in 1971, there was a huge outcry of publicity in favor of them. Okay? Um, Orbis Books, as I say, published um, Gustavo Gutierrez. And uh, it was given rave reviews by some people whose names might surprise you. The uh, Christians for Socialism got high praise in Commonweal magazine. Well, yeah. 
and high praise in the New York Times and some places. But rave reviews were written by Robert McAfee Brown. Does that name ring a bell? He's a long way back. Robert McAfee Brown was an ecumenical Presbyterian. Very fond of his role as an observer at Vatican II and kind of a big, uh, big guy in those days sucking up Catholic Protestant unity. The other rave review came from Avery Dulles, SJ, subsequently made a cardinal, and subsequently much improved, by the way. But in the early 70s, Dulles was bad news. That's the era when he put out that book of his, The, the um, Survival of Dogma, which he seemed to think was a bit in doubt. <laughs> Anyway, um, the theology of liberation appeared and replaced this thing called the theology of development. Now, why did it do that? Why were people all of a sudden discontented with theology of development? If you go back to those days, is anybody here but me old enough to remember John F. Kennedy? <laughs> Do you remember something called the Alliance for Progress? That was a hugely publicized Kennedy initiative to get America on the same side as the struggling Latin American countries. We were going to send them food, we were going to send them aid, we were going to send them capital, send them experts, encourage major corporations to invest in those countries, Right. Well, it sounded very good to me at the time. Not that I trust big government programs, mind you, but it sounded all right. And um, it was widely welcomed in Latin America at the time um, by everybody except the far left. Okay. The Moscow lining left-wing and socialist parties in Latin America did not want American influence to grow. And they feared that the Alliance for Progress would bring greater American influence. And uh, they developed a very ingenious method of undermining our growing influence. That was the method of demonizing multinational corporations. Okay. Until this time, multinational corporations had been widely heralded as supranational businesses uh, commanding the resources to do amazing things, undertake um, big uh, technological breakthroughs, that kind of thing. Multinational corporations were highly praised. Well, all of a sudden, multinational corporations became demonized. Why? because their money and expertise came with strings attached. Hmm. Suppose a multinational uh, company came down to your country and started making shoes. Okay. Well, I d doesn't seem to be anything wrong with that, except most of the peasants in your country don't wear shoes. 
So who are the shoes really being made for? The already rich Americans and Europeans who can now get them cheaper because they're made by underpaid workers in your country. Ah! So the idea was invented that multinational corporations were tools of something called neo-colonialism. The European countries didn't rule those, those states in the third world anymore, but they yoked them to their own economies and forced their development to go in directions that were not necessarily the most promising for the locals. Okay. Now, this sudden turn against the theology of development and the hopes for developing wealth in the third world countries uh, suddenly turn suddenly turn sudden turn against that reminds me of something we saw in the United States very briefly but we saw it um, who here is old enough to remember Teilhard de Chardin yes well, Teilhard was a Jesuit, big advocate of uh, global interconnection, economic unification of the world in a vast communications network that he called the noosphere. Okay, you got the biosphere and then the noosphere, mainly carried by telephone wires. And as long as theology of development was popular, the telephone wires were beautiful things. They were signs that we were all able to communicate now and get together and do things and learn about each other and so on and so on. Then came the sudden darkening of mood. And you saw it in um, uh, the Berrigan brothers who put out a book saying, that the worldwide network of communications lines is like a giant spider web. We're all being imprisoned by the ideas of the rich spread through this network. Oh dear. And it, frankly, it reminds me of another very sudden turn to a darker view of things that happened in the late Roman Empire. Until about the third century AD, most people in the Roman Empire had been happy with the Roman state. It wasn't perfect by any means, but it was a stable government and uh, there was peace across the whole Mediterranean. The pirates at least were wiped out, so it was good. And all of a sudden, a certain group of people decided that no, this cos this 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 Cosmopolis, this great world empire, was a dark trap. In fact, the whole universe was a dark trap. These people were called Gnostics. Gnostics, G-N-O-S-T-I-C. Before that, people had been happy in the universe. It's a great place. The Gnostics decided it was all a vast prison. Okay where diabolical powers keep us captive. 
All right. Something similar happened in Latin America at the end of the 70s, a sudden darkening of worldview and hence a sudden radicalization of political ambitions. Look, as long as what you have to do is make progress and develop your national resources and use capital from other countries and get ahead, uh, your politics is going to be fairly reasonable. But as soon as you decide that no, 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 you are trapped in a giant spider web of, na of uh, wicked multinational interests, you want to break free of those interests. Yes. And who was around in Latin America in those days to tell you how to break free of those interests? Why? The Soviet Union, of course, with its cat's paw, Mr. Castro and Mr. Guevara. And so, so you, you, you heard this message of how you could get out from under the oppressive structures of world capitalism by making the revolution. And it was the hope of the theology of liberation that more and more people and the church herself would turn to the cause of socialist revolution. Okay? Now, how in the world were you going to sucker the church into this? I mean, it's one thing to go to a country full of poor farmers and tell them, why, hey, you're kept poor by bad guys far away. It's time to get free of all of that. that. That's one thing. That's, you know, you can persuade them of that. But how are you going to persuade the clergy to be part of this program? How are you going to persuade them to work for the revolution? Ah. <laughs> the way for this was paved beginning in the 1920s okay, by a series of theological steps that introduced confusion over the distinction between nature and grace. Okay? The nature and grace distinction is absolutely fundamental. The church is all about the works of God's grace, the supernatural, what God is giving us beyond this life, our future hope, our future blessedness, and so on. If you take away the distinction between nature and grace, it's hard to distinguish the improvements that the church is after from the improvements that the world is after. Okay? And in fact, the reason there was a theology of development in the first place was because the distinction between nature and grace was being lost. Okay? As though salvation really was a matter of better mousetraps. We'll make progress, better projects, have better companies, and that, that, that moves us on towards the kingdom of God. You think? If you abandon the distinction between nature and grace, 
That's what happens to your mind. It becomes extremely dull. And so all progress sounds like the same. Hey, it's all human betterment. It's all human fulfillment. That's what God wants for us, isn't it? Perfect fulfillment. Tell so, he, let's build those mousetraps. It's bad news. After uh, the first moves, well, the very first moves in confusing the nature and grace distinction, was made by a French philosopher named Maurice Blondel, B-L-O-N-D-E-L, Maurice Blondel, who in 1906 wrote a dissertation and subsequently became more and more famous. And what he argued for in that dissertation was that man has no possible happiness except the beatific vision. Well, it doesn't sound so bad, does it? Well, but think about it. If man has no possible happiness except the supernatural vision of God in heaven, then man is by his very nature oriented towards the supernatural. How then is it quite supernatural anymore? You see what I mean? Um, People made a huge issue of this in the 1940s and the 50s. I was always on the side that said, uh, however superior heaven may be, there is a natural fulfillment for human beings. We would have those things that we naturally desire, but without supernatural grace, without the glory of the saints. Okay. Would that be a vastly poorer uh, bliss? Oh, yeah, sure. No doubt. The Christian picture is better. But there is a natural picture that can serve as an ideal attracting human beings. And so they do not have to confuse uh, the kingdom of God with their own ambitions. Well, after the early decades of the century, things got worse and worse. Books came out in the 40s denying that mankind could be, denying that man could have been created in a world in which he wasn't offered grace and heaven. Okay? If the supernatural goods had not been promised to us, man could not have been created. That became a very famous proposition. Shall I tell you who launched that proposition? Shall I? I'm bad-mouthing a lot of people here today. <laughs> that was Cardinal Henri de Lubac. Henri de Lubac. And the reason it became a famous proposition is because that smart, vigilant guy, Pius Twelfth, caught it and condemned it in a famous encyclical that came out in 1950 called Humani Generis. Now, when was the last time you heard of the encyclical Humani Generis? Okay, not much talked about. Vatican II didn't want to repeat it. <laughs> not that they repudiated it, but they didn't want to repeat it. And... Um, 
So uh, Lubach survived his, the condemnation of that proposition and went on to fame and glory. And then came that German monster named Karl Rahner. R-A-H-N-E-R. Karl Rahner had this elaborate theory whereby man is potency to grace. It's the only way to define him. Man just is a potency to the supernatural. Okay? Sounds very metaphysical. It's wacky. But if you sound metaphysical enough, people can't answer you. This is the secret of Rahner's success. Okay. Confusion over nature and grace led to a confusion of the basic distinction between salvation history and secular history. Okay. As long as God is pursuing a special plan, bringing to people supernatural goods above and beyond their nature, predestination is a separate issue from general providence. Predestination is the set of decisions in which God distributes supernatural goods. That's special. You have to be called to that, you have to be elected, and so on and so on. But general providence covers everything that happens in history, including secular history. Not a sparrow falls in outer Mongolia without divine providence knowing all about it. All right? But if you just confuse nature and grace, muck that up, then all of a sudden it looked begins to look as though salvation history is the same thing as general human history. Okay? God's just guiding us in all these ways, etc. And if you confuse salvation history with secular history, the church just becomes one more power center. One more player in the world historical game. She loses her special footing. All right? Now, all these are chickens that would come home to roost in the theology of liberation, about which I intend to tell you exhaustingly more when we meet again. But in the meantime, I want you to think about this. Where did the idea come from that all of history is unified? It's one big process going from the Garden of Eden to the far future. Where'd that idea come from? Okay. Is it in the fathers of the church? No. Not at all. I tell you what's a single process with one storyline, salvation history. Yes, salvation history begins in a way with creation in the Garden of Eden. In a, in a more specific way, it begins with the call of Abraham and the recruitment of the chosen people of the Old Testament and then the redemption through Christ and the replacement of the old Israel with the church, the new Israel, 
and so on. There's a continuity and a storyline to salvation history. But is there a similar unity of story, unity of narrative to world history? Hmm? Not really. Okay. Um, I was, um, I have recently had the privilege of housing an exchange student from China. And we've been talking a bit about uh, the developments in Chinese history, the Han Dynasty and the Tang Dynasty and so on, all very big, important events. In China, what relevance did any of them have to the West? Zero. And what relevance did developments in the West, like the fall of the Roman Empire, the barbarian invasions, what, did, what influence did that have on China? Zero. Okay? And similarly with outer Mongolia and Eskimo tribes. Look, mankind is not a unified agent. Okay? Mankind is not one unified history maker. So history, secular history, breaks down into a whole series of national and regional and individual stories, not just one story. So where did this idea that all of secular history has a focus, a purpose, a direction, an end come from? Okay. Of course, it's in Marx, but never mind that. Let's go back. Where did it first come from? It came from a source you will all recognize, though I'm going to give you a name you may not have heard in a while. Whig. W-H-I-G. The Whig historians in England came up with this idea that all of history had been about the struggle to achieve ordered liberty. This is why, as you remember from your school days, history sort of begins uh, in Athens. You got some democracy there in Athens, and then history sort of leaves Athens, goes over to Rome for a while, Roman Republic. Then that kind of turns bad with the empire, and uh, history is kind of uh, uh, stuck in muck. Uh, until, ah, history breaks forth again on the plains of Runnymede, where Magna Carta is signed, right? And once again, we're on the march towards ordered liberty, the free society ordered liberty. We were all taught this stuff. All of us who went to elementary school, certainly secular elementary school, in an English-speaking country. And I don't want to uh, pretend there's anything wrong with that. I'm not trying to suggest there's, there's anything wrong with it, except false universalization. Okay? The pursuit of ordered liberty in Western Europe, especially England and America, was a fine thing. 
But isn't it interesting how in that narrative, the Whig narrative of what history was all about, isn't it interesting how little happens in Vienna? I don't mean Vienna, Virginia. <laughs> I mean the big Vienna, the center of Christendom, for crying out loud. The capital of the Holy Roman Empire. Nothing very much seems to have happened there in the great struggle for individual liberty. See what I mean? Vast tracts of relevant Catholic history just get left out of the story. Okay? Now then. I'm about to call it quits for tonight, but not yet. First, I have to tell you what Hegel did to the Whigs. Yes. H-E-G-E-A-L. H-E-G-E-L. Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Thank you. Who said that? Who said Friedrich? That's right. Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, GWF Hegel, H-E-G-E-L, German philosopher, writing from the 1790s until his death in 1830. Okay? He published a philosophy of history in which he took the Whig theory of what the European struggle had been all about and turned it into a kind of metaphysics of history. The Whig theory of history now becomes the self-unfolding of the divine absolute. History as a whole is not just human plans and human doing. History is God unfolding himself in finite events. Yes. And in this self-unfolding, what does God promote? More and more liberty and order. More and more liberty. Okay. So it's now cosmic. It's metaphysical. It's cosmic. It's built into things. This idea was picked up by the famous Jesuit Teilhard de Chardin. I mentioned him before. That becomes the secret of progress in Teilhard, all the way from the first collection of molecules to the emergence of human consciousness to the fulfillment of history. Everything is about oh, greater and greater complexity leading to greater and greater liberty. There it is. Um, and then the theologians got into the act. Now, these theologians were not getting their ideas from the church. They were not getting their ideas from Constantine the Great. They were not getting their ideas from Urban VIII. They were getting them from the Whigs. And they decided they could play this game too. And they got into writing theologies of history, in which, guess what? All historical process was about man's self-liberation. Mm -hmm. In a way, it's God's self-disclosure. In a way, it's man's own achievement. The human and the divine just sort of mixed together without clear boundaries, and all of history is, becomes 
the history of a liberation effort. Huh? Now then, that is the very question with which the theology of liberation introduced itself. Okay? The opening question, this is the opening question in Gutierrez's book, it's the opening question for Juan Luis Segundo and all the rest of those writers. The opening question, what is the relation between the kingdom of God and the historical process of the liberation of man? That's their question. I said, wait a minute. What historical process of the liberation of man? Is the gulag part of that process? Huh? Is this a continuous development? Couldn't tyranny come back tomorrow in spades? Absolutely. There's no such metaphysical guarantee of progressively greater liberty. This is all ideological baloney, bad metaphysics. And now you want to put God into this and make human liberation the aim and purpose of providence? That's exactly what the liberation theologians wanted to do. So they started with a corrupt question, okay, and then reached an even more corrupt answer. But I'm not going to tell you what that answer was because I've said enough tonight. See you next week. Thank you, Dr. Marshner. Dr. Marshner, who would be the primary advocate of liberation theology today, or is it something that has sort of gone underground so that we, there isn't one? There isn't really one I can point to. Uh, Juan Luis Segundo is still alive and writing. Uh, he's a bit passé. They're all passé, because with the collapse of Marxism, that was the collapse of that theology regions I will discuss more next week. But um, still, I mean, there are um, there are hangers on. It's a funny thing. The, the, the dreams of the left never die. You know? Um, they come back in another form, a milder form, we're going to do it right this time. We'll be a more democratic socialism this time. Um, and the press keeps uh, reinvigorating the, the dreams of the left. Whereas the dreams of the right aren't even given a decent burial. But people strike for justice. Yes. Yes. All right. I don't know if you can uh, do this in terms of a numerical ratio, Professor, but generally speaking, to what extent was liberation theology a uh, Soviet conspiracy versus uh, a homegrown Latin American phenomenon? All right. It was both. Um, let's put it this way. 
it was homegrown, but not without considerable Soviet sympathy and support, including monetary support. And at the time in the 70s, of course, we didn't know that. But more and more has come out, uh, you know, as uh, KGB archives got opened. We have seen how money was funneled into leftist church movements in Latin America to fund this theology. Yeah. We have a question coming in from online. Uh, Mary from Springfield says, problem, the problem seems to begin in academic circles. Did these things infect seminaries? What should have been done to prevent this? Is it, is it even possible? I think that's three questions, but. It certainly got into the seminaries uh, and into certain religious orders. I mentioned the Mary Knowles. Um, and uh, <laughs> what could be done about it? Well, the Vatican had at least two chances to clean up the mess in American seminaries. I don't want to talk about seminaries worldwide. I don't know enough about all the different countries. But here in the United States, the seminaries are a real mess. Rome had two chances to clean them up. And the cleanup effort was always a joke. Okay? The last was conducted by a fellow named Bishop Marshall. Uh, he would go to a seminary. The, sem the locals would clean up their act, dust off the clericals and so on, make the guys look good. And when he went away, back to uh, playtime. So, uh, and, and they just, they didn't ask hard questions. They didn't interview the Orthodox students to get the real lowdown from the inside. Um, it's as though the uh, hierarchy wanted to seem to crack down without bearing any of the pain of doing so. That's my own crabby assessment. But other than that, I don't know what can be done except to just wait for these bad seminaries to collapse. They are collapsing in great numbers. I hate to see us lose the nice buildings. But where orthodoxy comes back, even in limited degree, the seminary thrives again. So it's, it's not for lack of vocations. Professor Marshner. Um, as you said, the, the liberation theology, uh, you know, in, in a certain sense is sort of passe and, and collapsed along with Marxism. So what is its relevance now as far as like, you know, studying, you know, you know et cetera? You know, what, what do we need to know about and be concerned about? You need to know how the series of conceptual steps and movements in 20th century theology led to such an unexpected and horrible outcome. How could it happen? Okay. Uh, leaving aside some infusions of Soviet cash. Intellectually, how could people work themselves into a position where they were seeing the kingdom of God being brought to earth by liquidating the bourgeoisie? I'm going to try to say more about that next time, but it's a fascinating question. And it behooves us well to know it, because a great deal of 20th century theology 
uh, has been um, oh affirmed and sort of yeah that was great that's where we were yesterday that's very good uh, it just it, it seems as though at Vatican II and after Vatican II, there's just a kind of um, Pollyanna attitude. Everything is wonderful. Now, of course, some of these great innovations, they have some lacunae. They're missing a few things. We have to point that out. But still, so much creativity, so much, oh, yeah, so much ferment. Yeah. Well, it's about time we figured out how dangerous some of that ferment was. I just uh, wanted to ask, what about the horror of the candidates of this United States election? Both of them uh, so polarized and, you know, it's, they're horrible, both of them. <laughs> I don't know. That's all. I'd like you to comment. Well. I think we all remember fondly, not very long ago in America, when we were a far less polarized people. And our political discourse did seem more civil, because it was always full of nasty stuff and catcalls, don't get me wrong. Even in the 19th century, it was full of nasty stuff. But the, the, the uh, divisions were not all that deep and all that radical. Well, now they are. And partially it's because of the drift of the entire Democratic Party to the left, I think. <laughs> but I don't want to get into that because I didn't come here to spout my politics. Okay? Thank you, Dr. Marshner. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.